0: Welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that proves that award season really is a year-round event. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with Vanity Fair's film critic Richard Lawson. Hello. Uh, This week, we've once again lost Mike, but gained another special guest in Franklin Leonard, who is the founder and CEO of The Blacklist, which is a source for screenplays within Hollywood and more generally, the perennial answer to that question, where are all the good original movies in Hollywood? Uh, we'll talk to Franklin about his work in uncovering great unproduced screenplays through the Blacklist and in, in working with up-and-coming screenwriters through the Blacklist website. And then how those films that get made inevitably lead to the Oscars sometimes. From there, Richard and I will look at the next award show on the awards calendar, the MTV Movie Awards. It's what we've all been looking forward to for years now. We'll take a look at who's going to take home the golden popcorn and whether any of this actually matters, except for Best Kiss, which I think we can both agree is the most important award of the entire year. I think history bears that out. Yes. <laughs> uh, but first, we're going to look at the weekend Oscar news, which is uh, pretty quiet. We're still waiting for Cannes to announce its official lineup. And uh, the mm-hmm. Tribeca Film Festival here in New York hasn't gotten started yet. Well, Rudy Allen's new movie is opening Cannes. Uh, Richard, you've been there. Does that mean anything? Is this surprising at all?
1: No, I mean, he's big at Cannes. He, it's just a good venue for him, especially since he's been working in this Euro vein, you know. Yeah. Um, so no, I mean, I, for me, honestly, cynically, I'm just really excited that Kristen Stewart and Blake Lively will be red carpet presences <laughs> at Cannes. I think for our sort of photo team at com, that's good news. You know, Blake Lively last year or two years ago, rather, um, the captive uh, Ryan Reynolds movie was uh, in competition and she was also Br- Blake Lively was there supporting her husband but also was there partnered with some fashion brands and so she she walked I think like five or six carpets and like the photos were incredible because she's always so well dressed and yeah if
0: you you know, you've never paid attention to the can red carpet it really cannot be something. overestimated how incredible the fashion is like people who will show up at the Oscars wearing something very just like demure and like normal Oscar dress will wear something incredible yeah. to the can red carpet
1: and as someone who has walked the red carpet at Cannes mm. can before um, last year, me and uh, our colleague, Julie Miller, uh, Julie Miller got us into the opening night. And so we had a car take us up to the the red carpet and get out. And I honestly still can still hear the collective sort of like sigh of disappointment (laughs) when Julie and I walked out of the car and there was we were not famous people and we just sort of scurried (laughs) by all the photographers. Yeah, I mean, but even just standing on it and seeing all the photographers is quite something so you can really understand why uh, the celebrities get as dressed up as they do, because it really is such a moment, you know, and the carpet is about, I don't know, 30 feet wide. And it's it's really quite something
0: yeah so. so even for those of us who don't get to go we can look forward to seeing the lineup get announced and seeing which stars are going to be wearing
1: yeah which should be in a couple of weeks i just sort of anecdotally spoke to a publicist who represents a lot of big people and she didn't even know if she was going to be going because she didn't know what movies were being selected so they're really keeping it tight um you know obviously there are some some predictions in, in mind but maybe that's for another episode
0: yeah, this is the uh, the French just do whatever they want to do, I guess. Yep. And then this week marks the release of Demolition, the Jake Gyllenhaal movie that I've been seeing ads for nonstop. Somehow it was the opening film of last year's Toronto and might be this year's first this had Oscar buzz uh, yeah. contender. Richard, yeah. you saw it and I didn't. Uh, did. Just a quick yeah. word for Demolition.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean it's Sean Mark Valley who uh, did a Wild and uh, Dallas Buyers Club, and he's a really talented director. Kind of got a very has a very sort of unique signature style. And he's been big with Toronto. He's a he's a Quebecois filmmaker, so they obviously want to support Canadian filmmakers at that festival. So they gave him that big plum opening night slot. Which, uh, you know, I think reaction to the movie was was mixed at best. I would say uh, good performances from Jake Gyllenhaal, Chris Cooper, and Naomi Watts, but uh, it you know it it doesn't really come together. It's sort of it's yet another. Troubled, broken down man saved by semi magical kid kind of movie.
0: I saw Saint Vincent. I feel like I don't need to see this.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of in that vein. A little bit darker than, than Saint Vincent, but um, and certainly you know younger. Jake Gyllenhaal is younger than Bill Murray, but but yeah, it's not. It, I think that its release time is. It is telling.
0: You know, what's funny is that Jake Gyllenhaal got sort of close to a best actor nomination for Nightcrawler because that film was so impressive. Mm -hmm. And then since then, Southpaw and this have just been kind of like two whiffs in a row for, you know, serious consideration.
1: Yeah. And the funny, I mean, whiffs, yeah, definitely. But, you know, he's good in both of them, but it's just the movies just don't come together. And, and, you know, you can see on paper why this, why Demolition would be such a good idea. Um, You know, Valley directed McConaughey and Jared Leto to wins and a nomination for Reese Witherspoon and, you know, um, uh, the 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 premise is sort of you know well tested in in the awards race field, but yeah, there's just it it's a little bit uh, it's it's a little bit I don't know self indulgent the movie uh, or something. Jake's
0: big Oscar it's 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 imminent. I can sense it. Like it'll happen. We'll be there in a couple of years. So. Yeah, totally. And now we'd like to welcome Franklin Leonard, who is the founder and CEO of the Blacklist, which is one of those indispensable Hollywood industry resources that people outside of Hollywood may have no idea how important it is. So, Franklin, to start, uh, first of all, welcome, and then, what is the Blacklist, and why is it so important? As I as I have just said.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me. I, you know, it, it started as a very simple survey of the industry. By the industry, I mean the gatekeepers who sort of populate the town's production companies, studios, and major financiers, a, a survey of their most liked unproduced screenplays. And I was working for Leonardo DiCaprio's production company in 2005. I was desperate to read some good scripts over the holidays. And so I just surveyed all of my peers and said, send me a list of your 10 favorite scripts that haven't yet been made. In exchange, I'll send you back the combined list. And over the last 11 years that we've continued to do it, it evolved into something of an arbiter of taste for unproduced screenplays. And, and they've had great success at the Oscars um, and other major awards. Um, and then in the years following, you know, we've evolved into a... Um, a two-sided marketplace that allows any writer from around the world to upload their script, have it evaluated, and if it's good, we sort of repeat the process that we do with the annual list, which is to say that we, we tell the entire industry, hey, there's a great script here. You should do something with it. <laughs> and, and quite gratifyingly, a lot of people do. Um, I think we shine a very bright spotlight on a lot of very good material, which goes on to become great movies. Not all of it becomes great movies, but on balance, I think more often than not, it does. You know, people can read more about that on our website. It's blacklist.com with mm-hmm. no vowels, B-L-C-K-L-S-T dot com. But uh, yeah, that's that's the sort of short version.
0: Yeah. So so why is it, I think, if you are kind of outside the industry and you, so you're saying, oh, well, there's all these great unproduced screenplays that all these people in the industry know that they know and like. Why aren't they being made? Like, why does it take something like The Blacklist to shine a light on these things?
2: The industry has... I mean, there, there are many components to the decision to make a movie, and I think that but two of the, the most important ones are, you know, the quality of the material and the quality that you think that the, the movie will be, but also just the financial reality of making a movie. And I think that in a capital-intensive business, uh, it's almost inevitable that the, uh, the, 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 the financial imperatives and the financial concerns about cost and, and, uh, and revenue... End up overwhelming the decisions about about sort of creative quality. So I and I think we're you know we're in a world where you know domestic re- domestic theatrical revenue is flat, post theatrical revenue is cratering, and you know there's growth internationally. There's a tendency towards ultra conservatism in the kind of movies that people make. So when they read a script about uh, an Indian kid from the slums who goes on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire as a way to find his lost love or the biography of a gay cryptographer, no one reads that and says, that's how I'm going to make $100 million. But the reality is, is that if you can sort of validate the thesis that the script is really good, and it gives you a better chance of making a really good movie, you might end up a slumdog millionaire in the imitation game. What would you say
1: the climate is right now? I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk about how there are no movies for grown-ups anymore. And, you know, you have certain studios like, what is it, STX, that, you know, are trying to do these kind of mid-budget things. Do you see any sort of trend toward that, away from that right now?
2: You know, I, I've always been skeptical of the thesis that there are no movies for grown-ups anymore. I think that the reality is that the studios aren't making uh, movies for grown-ups anymore. The studios have definitely shifted their, their bundle of product to branded entertainment that sort of overwhelmingly is targeted at the summer marketplace. I mean, Disney's entire business strategy is built around that. But I, I, don't, I don't know that I buy the idea that there aren't movies for adults anymore. It's just that those movies are being distributed by other companies um, and they may be a little bit harder to find. You may have to go to your local indie movie theater to see a movie for adults, but there are a lot of great movies for adults every year. And I think we see many of them awarded during the Oscar season. And they, oh, and, then, and there's the also issue that they mainly come out between the Toronto Film Festival and the Oscars. So the sort of September to, to February uh, Movie-going experience if you're an adult is a heck of a lot. Uh, there are a lot more options than if you're going between like late April and and late July. But no, look, I, th- I just think that there's a shift in in who's spending money on what. The studios are spending money on big entertainments. Um, I think a lot of independent money and companies like STX that are trying to build a studio model around quote films for adults. You know, that's 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 where those movies are getting made and they're being made on smaller budgets than they would have been made for maybe 30 years ago. But I do believe that they're still uh, getting made. And thank God for that.
0: Another thing that I think if you're a moviegoer, you might not realize about the whole process of scripts is just how many scripts will be in Hollywood and how many will get purchased and never made and how yeah. someone will get signed to a deal off a script that no one will ever make. Is that, I mean, you've been involved in this long enough that maybe you don't find it frustrating, but is does that is that the colossal amount of waste that it seems like to me where there's all these great scripts that no one ever has any intention of making?
2: It's definitely frustrating, especially when you find something that you love and then you have trouble getting it made even though people have invested money in it. You know, I think people should think of of the, the script development world as the sort of research and development of the film industry. You know, these this is the, the money that is spent trying to identify those things that will end up being the great the great pieces of film and the great products that the industry produces. And 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 I don't think, you know, in the pharmaceutical industry and in a lot of other industries, you wouldn't bat an eye at spending an overwhelming amount of money for research and development. But for some reason in Hollywood, people are, are shocked. That, oh, we're spending money to give, we're spending money on writers to write things that may never get made. Mm. Now, as a movie goer, I'd like to see as many of those things as possible because I'm pretty omnivorous in my consumption. And, you know, whether it's a small indie about two people um, and the dissolution of a relationship or whether it's, you know, the next Avengers movie, I'm on board for either one. But I think that, you know, there should be. Uh, a lot of screenplays being written and people should be trying to to filter through them and identify the ones that they think will make the best movies based on whatever their sort of business plan and sort of economic reality is. But I look, I think the the other reality is, is that there are uh, just an overwhelming number of screenplays. I think that it is one of the few uh, pursuits in the film industry that you can do alone without a lot of resources. Like it takes money to make a movie, even um, Tangerine you know, was was shot on iPhones, but requires some amount of money. It might have only been a couple thousand dollars, but that's still a lot of money to most people. To write a screenplay, you know, you need pen and paper or a laptop or some way to write. And so I think that screenwriting sort of remains the last frontier for people who think, hey, I want to be involved in film. How can I be involved in film? I'll write a movie. So I think a lot of people write movies. I think the Writers Guild registers tens of thousands of screenplays a year, when I was an executive at Universal, I remember doing a back-of-an-envelope calculation that, you know, maybe two to 3,000 of those circulate widely throughout the industry every year. And the studios make, what, two, 300 movies a year at most? So there's a winnowing process that happens. You know, the vast majority of those 50,000 are not usually worth the paper they're printed on. But, you know, of those 2,000, 3,000 that circulate widely, you can imagine versions of those movies getting made and some of them actually being made well. So... You know, it it can definitely feel like the luck of the draw. And ultimately, it comes down to the whims of a few people that have the ability to greenlight a movie.
0: And there's still those stories where, you know, someone's working in a toll booth and sells a script or someone is, you know, like the Diablo Cody story of having, you know, been a writer and a stripper. Like that's still kind of that dream of breaking through as a screenwriter still happens enough that people keep chasing after it.
2: It does. And I think actually the Blacklist website, um, without being too self-serving here, actually uh, facilitates that. I mean, I think, look, for years there's been this assumption, right, that if you want to be a screenwriter, there's two ways in. One is to enter the Nickel Fellowship, which is the Academy Screenwriting Competition and the biggest and most important one on earth. And if you do well, if you place in the top 100, someone will probably call you and then you can figure it out. And the other is, you know, pick up your life and move to Los Angeles and get a job at Starbucks and network your way into someone paying attention to your script. And You know, for me, and I think the Blacklist website has validated this conclusion, you know, the ability and willingness to move to Los Angeles has no correlation whatsoever to your ability to write a good story. And in fact, I would argue that it's probably inversely correlated because the reality is that most people that have the ability to pick up and move to LA are upper middle class. Uh, Their parents are probably helping them pay the bills. Whereas, you know, if you're a single mother with two kids and a mortgage living in the middle of America, you've got a pretty clear acquaintance with what real life is like and the concerns of real people. And if you're a good storyteller, you can probably figure out screenwriting and it doesn't require you to live in Los Angeles in a world where we have email and Skype and things like that.
1: So now you mentioned the Imitation Game and Slumdog Millionaire, two blacklist scripts that went on to huge success. Do you have any like? Are those the sort of prototypical examples you might give if someone asks you what is a blacklist script, or is does such an example exist at all, or more? I mean, because I know it's usually a pretty diverse array of stories and tropes and genres and stuff.
2: I think that if there is a common thread. To scripts that are on the annual blacklist and i distinguish that from the website although there is some overlap you know scripts that are on the annual blacklist tend to be things that at first glance are not going to be box office gold so you know let's just look at all of the best picture winners that were previously on the blacklist spotlight the king's speech argo you know none of those scripts were things that that on their face made any studio head say let's spend hundred million dollars on this movie immediately but they were also wildly ambitious and told an emotional human story that, that connected with people in a real way. Um, and I think those are that, that's probably the thing that, that most that, that's most represented on the annual blacklist. Things that are not obvious uh, movies in a sort of conventional 2016 Hollywood commercial way of thinking, but that are executed at such a high level that if you do make them and make them well, they have sort of limitless opportunity, both critically and commercially in, in, in the marketplace. So
1: something we've talked a lot about on this podcast, um, and you know that the this industry in general has been talking about, you know, is the Oscars so white? This this question of diversity. Do you how do you think that that is represented by or can be sort of that that cause can be furthered by the blacklist? Is that is that um, on your agenda for things of things to do with uh, the website and and the the whole institution of the blacklist?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, the blacklist takes its name from a twofold reference. The first is obviously to the blacklist of the uh, McCarthy era. Uh, and wanting to give tribute to those who lost their careers, a lot of whom were screenwriters, um, as we saw in the movie Trumbo this year. But it's also a a conscious inversion of the assumption that the the term black or the the word black somehow needs to be a negative. So it is definitely something that is frequently on my mind. Look, I'm a a black guy who grew up in west-central Georgia, so I'm acutely aware of the extent to which uh, access issues end up subverting a meritocracy as i think we've seen in hollywood you know the annual blacklist i think suffers from many of the same problems that the oscars do you know it ultimately is meant to be a snapshot of all of the conversations the industry is having about what scripts they love and for people to be having conversations about what scripts they love they need to have seen those scripts in the first place and if there are vetting mechanisms or filtering mechanisms in the industry that prevent a certain kind of person whether they be people of color or women or writers above a certain age, it is highly likely that you're not gonna see those people represented or see them underrepresented in, a, in an end-of-the-year list like the Blacklist or in an end-of-the-year summary like the, um, like the Oscars and the, and the award season generally. Um, the Blacklist website most certainly takes as part of its mission uh, to rectify some of that sort of anti-merocratic biases that exist in the industry. You know, we have partnerships with with multiple studios to identify writers from previously underrepresented communities for Guild Minimum Blind Deals. Uh, we just partnered with Women in Film to launch a TV episodic lab, and we'll be doing more of that in the near future. We also just did a lab for female screenwriters uh, with the Athena Film Festival in New York. You know, Oscar So White, I think, is a, a consequence of industry so white, or and just like Oscar So Male is a consequence of industry so male. And I think that that is really just a soil boiled down version of, you know, American power structure so white, American power structure so male. So I think as, as that begins to change, uh, we'll see Hollywood begin to change. And I, I think we're at a, a really interesting moment where people are starting to realize that diversity is not just good from a moral and ethical standpoint. It's also incredibly valuable from a, a financial one. If you make diverse films from diverse points of view, and I, I mean diverse, including gender, race, uh, the LGBT community and age, you are more likely to make more money. And I think the more people that realize that, the more diversity you're going to see, not because of a moral and ethical imperative, but just from a pure financial one. And I'm fine with that.
0: Well, you're in a position to watch that change happen at an earlier stage, just in the script stage in terms of what's getting attention. And I think we all watched uh, the attention that Birth of a Nation got at Sundance this year and thought, OK, maybe this really is happening. Like, we really are going to change the stories we're telling. But are you seeing those trends reflected in the scripts that are getting picked up or made? Like, are we – is Hollywood actually getting more diverse already?
2: Not as much as I'd like to see it. I think we're definitely seeing some early sort of sprigs of growth, but I think we're far from a full-growth forest that we need in order to sustain that. I mean, I think the other reality is is that you look at something like Birth of a Nation, right? Nate Parker took years to get that movie financed. The script was the same as... it. The script didn't change very much after he had finished writing it, but it took him years to convince dentists you know, independent uh, financiers who, you know, were sort of making their first move or were, you know, making an offer on the movie or or contributing to the movie, not because they thought they would make money, but just because they believed in what the story that Nate was trying to tell. I think that, you know, the more Birth of a Nation success stories you have, the more likely it is that people are going to say, hey, maybe I should look for a film about the black experience. Maybe I should look for a a story told by an African-American female director. Maybe I should look for a film from a Mexican-American director about the Mexican experience in the U.S. Um, And I think the more uh, people realize that there's money to be made, I think they'll be more likely to look for it. uh, And it'll be much easier for people like Nate and the next Nate uh, to get their movie financed. But I think, you know, even on the screenwriting level, I don't think we're seeing, frankly, as much diversity as I'd like to see. And it's one of the things that The Blacklist is really encouraging writers of color, female writers, writers who for ver- all too long have been underrepresented in terms of the content that's getting made to put their work out there because there are audiences that are interested in seeing it both within the industry and in the movie going public at large.
1: Speaking of Birth, birth of a Nation, um, you know, looking ahead, that's a, a movie that's coming out later this year. Are there any other movies maybe based on blacklist scripts that you're that we should be anticipating?
2: Uh, I should have done that prep this year. I have not <laughs> taken that a close look yet. I try actually to not think too much about it until, uh, until the movies come out. I'll have to get back to you on that. On the on the black films that are coming this year, uh, I'm very excited for Barry Jenkins' next film, uh, which I've heard early word is quite good. Not to hype it too much, but um, Medicine for Melancholy was brilliant, so I'm certainly looking forward to his next effort.
0: What do you lo- what do you look forward to in general, personally? I mean, obviously you're pursuing these, you know, bringing these scripts out to the forefront. But like, what's the kind of stuff that you like seeing, either trend wise, or just like what marks you like a good season for Hollywood or a good year for Hollywood?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I, like I said before, I'm pretty omnivorous in my consumption. Like, I'm I'm the guy who will literally be there, you know, opening weekend for a Michael Hanukkah film and opening weekend for Batman versus Superman. <laughs> so pretty much anything in between. I just want movies to be great, regardless of their, their budget, regardless of where they come from, regardless of the stories they're telling. Uh, the thing for me, more than anything, is... Make me feel something, leave me godsmacked by the, the emotions that the movie elicits and, and leave me with something that I want to talk about as soon as I leave the theater and you've got a fan for life. So it, it's really even hard for me to say these are the movies that I'm looking forward to because, you know, I'll go to Toronto this year and, and end up at a screening at 9 a.m. And, and end up watching something like A Prophet and then, you know, having no, knowing nothing about it prior to that and then having it become my favorite movie of the last 15 years.
1: I don't know if you want if you like want to share this, but if is there any script that ha- as yet unproduced that you're like really into that you would want to tell us about or is that
2: Yeah, I'll tell you about about two scripts and it's funny because one will be a film that's coming out this year. The normal my typical answer to this question is a screenplay called Jackie about Jackie Kennedy um, that was number two on the blacklist a very long time ago, written by a good friend of mine from college named Noah Oppenheim, who's actually now a producer on The Today Show. It is a story of Jackie Kennedy. Uh, It begins with the assassination and ends with the funeral of JFK. And it is an extraordinary film. I believe Natalie Portman is starring, and they're shooting it now. I am very much looking forward to that this fall, Um, and I expect that it will definitely be part of the Oscar race. And then another uh, script that I just, I'm shocked they have not made it yet, and I'm very excited to to see it on screen, uh, is a script called College Republicans uh, by a writer named Wes Jones, who is actually a writer on Billions uh, this year. It is the story, it is a, a buddy road comedy about Lee Atwater and Carl Rove running for the presidency of the College Republicans based on true events. And uh, I very much hope to see it on the screen uh, someday in the near future. But in the meantime, uh, The Blacklist is hosting it as a live staged script reading uh, on April 23rd here in Los Angeles at the Montalban Theater. Just go to The Blacklist website, you can find where to buy tickets. But that is definitely a movie, especially... You know, uh, in the middle of the 2016 uh, presidential race uh, where we're seeing the consequences of a lot of the political strategy that Lee Atwater and Karl Rove implemented. Oh, so long ago when they were running for the College of Public uh, presidency of the College of Republicans. It's a movie that I think is uh it would be informative and entertaining for for really everyone who might consider voting in the twenty sixteen election or any election in the future.
0: I feel like that one keeps threatening to get made. Like I keep hearing like Adam McKay was involved at one point, like there's always talk about it and then it never happens.
2: I think that is a perfect description. it, <laughs> it keeps threatening to get made. I've wanted to do it as a live read for literally two years, as long as we've been doing the live reads, and every time I've asked, it's like, oh, it's about to go, it's about to go, <laughs> and it still hasn't. And we managed to get it. Uh, we managed to get it for a live read this year, uh, like I said, April 23rd, and I'm very excited for it. Yeah, my understanding right now is that John Croquettis is attached to direct it with Daniel Radcliffe and George Mackay starring. So that will be amazing when the movie actually does come together, and hopefully our live read uh, of it this month will will spur some people into action to get it made.
0: Well, anyone in Los Angeles listening to this should definitely go to that. I'll be pretty jealous. Franklin, thank you so much for joining us. You actually have made me really excited to see Jackie and just kind of keep an eye on what the Blacklist gets up to. It's kind of the answer to where are all the good movies. they're uh, They're coming out of there for a lot of the time.
2: Uh, We try to be, and thank you so much for having me. And yeah, uh, Saturday, April 23rd, it's going to be really exciting. There's one other element to what we're doing with the live read that I think will excite a lot of people, but we're not quite ready to announce it yet, but stay tuned. I think think you're going to like it even more and be even more jealous when we announce what we're doing with this one.
0: On Sunday, April 10th, MPV will hold its annual movie awards. It's hosted by The Rock and Kevin Hart this year, which I think is actually a pretty smart team. They're in a movie together, so, yeah. so it's all part of it. Tall
1: guy, short guy. It's yeah, fine. Yeah. It's just easy comedy right there.
0: <laughs> you know, he'll just pick up Kevin Hart by his ears and uh, yeah. parade him around the stage. The MTV Movie Awards are nonsense. As, I mean, many award shows are nonsense, but the MTV Movie Awards really make up their own rules. Uh, the, the nominees for the movie of the year include Avengers, Age of Ultron, Creed, Deadpool, which came out this year, Jurassic World, Star Wars, and Straight Outta Compton. So kind of a huge mishmash right there. But
1: hey, look, they did better than the Oscars in nominating diverse films. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> with Creed and Serena Compton, so I hey, know. It, it, point point one for MTV. That's true. Yeah, I mean the fun thing about these awards, I mean you know, a the timing. Avengers: Age of Ultron came out almost a year ago. Yeah, Deadpool came out a month ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's this great mishmash of movies where you have Deadpool nominated at the same award show as you know.
0: He Named Me Malala. He
1: Named Me Malala, you know, and Marina Baccarin from Deadpool is nominated for Best Female Performance alongside, <laughs> you know, Alicia Vikander in Ex Machina or... You and know,
0: Anna Kendrick in Pittsburgh too. I mean,
1: or Jennifer Lawrence in Joy, the movie that won't die. You know, so it's just, it's a fun really sampling of people. I mean, Michael B. Jordan is nominated, which is great. Yeah,
0: there's, the Breakthrough Performance category is actually really solid. It's got Amy Schumer, Brie Larson, Daisy Ridley, Dakota Johnson, John Boyega, and O'Shea Jackson Jr. Like, yeah. he, O'Shea Jackson Jr. wouldn't have been been my choice from the Straight of Compton cast, but, you know, still, that's a pretty solid list of people who broke through big in 2015.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so if nothing else, kids will watch this, teens will watch this award show and see, you know, a slightly more diverse palette of people than <laughs> those who watch the oscars so that's promising
0: well these and, kids aren't even watching the oscars so well okay fair enough. they're seeing clips of the oscars <laughs> sure but sure. you know
1: i mean and then they also have, they have i mean i didn't know that they had a documentary category and you are. do have you know he named him malala but also the Wolfpack, a weird little movie about some an eccentric new york family or what, ha- what happened to miss simone mike hogan's favorite movie of last year the hunting ground which i you know which lady gaga lost the best song Award for, uh, for uh, at the oscars but you know is a very good important movie about you know Subject matter that pertains to young what about people. about campus rape? Which is, uh-huh. you know, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I, I i do we have any predictions for this? Or <laughs> I mean, we well, could just go right to Best Kiss. I which, think
0: Best Kiss is the yeah. the only. Ha- I actually wrote a whole post about Best Kiss when the nominations came out because go. once again they were weird and not representative of what you actually want in the category. Because there, you have these iconic wins in this category, mostly the Ryan Gosling Rachel McAdams year, where they you know reenacted their kiss on stage. Right. That's right. Uh, and so you kind of hope. But
1: also the Spider Man. Kiss yes. And Don and Tom I feel like that's the iconic best kiss. Yeah. So, right? yeah,
0: you, uh, you have these kind of kisses that you like, you remember and kind of ex- sum up the year in pop culture. And this year, the, nominee, the nominees include Leslie Mann and Chris Hemsworth in Vacation, which is a movie I saw and I don't remember them kissing. I ever. was on
1: vacation, so I did not see
0: it. <laughs> you had a much better time, yeah. I'm sure. And Margot Robbie and Will Smith in Focus, which, I mean, Which sure. definitely
1: came out a year ago. <laughs>
0: yeah, more than yeah. a year ago, I yeah. think. Yeah. I mean, you got Fifty Shades of Grey on there, so sure, like, mm-hmm. maybe that's the winner. And then, like, Rebecca. Wilson and Adam Devine in Pitch Perfect 2, who are like this couple who don't yeah. like each other that much. It's a, it's a weird list.
1: Yeah, I'm a, I'm a little bummed there isn't any, there's no same sex kisses there on this.
0: There are some
1: There have been. are there, the there non
0: jokey ones, though?
1: That's a good question.
0: Yeah, just looking back in the past couple of years, I mean, there's some weird ones. There's, there's Kristen Stewart and Dakota Fanning in The Runaways, which is a movie nobody saw but was clearly just nominated for that. James Franco and Sean Penn in Milk. So there's something there oh, yeah. nominated okay. the same year as Paul Rudd and Thomas Lennon and I love you man which is a whole uh, that was like a gay panic scene. Right,
1: right. Um
0: so yeah, there's a there's a weird in terms of the progressiveness of the MTV Movie Awards you can kind of watch it in this best kiss category and kind of jump back and forth between working and not working.
1: Yeah, I'm in a, I'm a, if I were casting my vote, which I guess you can vote online, but I would probably go I got to go with Johnson and Dornan for Fifty Shades of Grey.
0: Even though they famously had no chemistry, right?
1: I don't don't know. I'm a weird, like, apologist for that movie. I think that movie is great and and really well done. And I I thought they had chemistry. But maybe, I think I actually said this in my review when I wrote about it a year ago, that um, (laughs) Jamie Dornan could have chemistry with, like, a mop. He's just
0: oh, so she's the so
1: no. I mean, she's great, but like he's he's just so attractive that mm. it doesn't really matter <laughs> to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm looking at what else I'm pulling for. Like, you could get an award for Ray and Kylo Ren in Star Wars for best fight. That would be yeah. very satisfying. Best virtual performance could give an award to Amy Poehler for Inside Out. That was an amazing performance. that's mm-hmm. so not going to get recognized anywhere else. No, there's like a. I mean, who knows how much these uh, statues mean? Anything? It would be
1: kind of fun to see Tom Hardy win. For best villain for the Revenant, just to see Tom Hardy accept an award <laughs> at the MTV movie awards, which for, won't happen, but
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure he won't show up and we'll for all we know lose to I guess the guy is Hugh Keys Byrne is the one who plays uh in uh, Joe. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean I hope he goes. That guy That'd be great. deserves a trip to the MTV movie
1: awards. Yeah, absolutely. And he's I'm um,
0: gonna I mean, get Samuel Jackson and Kingsman, a movie that opened more than a year ago.
1: Yeah, and that's 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 one of the it's a, kinda like the Golden Globes in that way where it's like, Wait, that show you because know, yeah. they the just the timing is off, the scheduling is off. But I don't know. I think that most importantly, other than Best Kiss obviously, is let's just have Leo cap off the air mm-hmm. with the win for the Revenant. Just oh one God. last one last award for the Revenant. Yeah, I think for it, him. I
0: think he needs it.
1: Yeah, and you know, I feel like he i he was definitely a Best Kiss nominee for Romeo and Juliet or Titanic, right? He oh, has to yeah. have been. So so maybe this would be a full circle sort f- of thing. I
0: wonder if he's been snubbed by the MTV movie awards the way he's been snubbed. Snubbed by uh, what's snubbed by the Oscars until this year.
1: I, I don't know. I, I, I bet they've been kinder to him.
0: He lost oh. the uh, Best Kiss statue for the Titanic year to Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore in The Wedding Singer. Oh. And then the year before, lost for Romeo and Juliet to Will Smith and Vivica Fox in Independence Day. Oh, wow. That so ne- neither of those a track for me. Perpetual Best
1: Kiss <laughs> mate Well, too bad he's not nominated for Best Kiss for The Revenant. Him and the bear. Or and yeah, the snow. <laughs> The best kiss between Leonardo DiCaprio and bison liver.
0: (laughs) I mean, he really earned that, though.
1: That's true.
0: And now we'll close with a chance to rewrite recent history. Richard, if we were in charge of the 2011 Oscars, what would have won Best Picture? As a reminder, this is the year that The King's Speech won. It was uh, one of the first years that there were 10 nominees.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think it was one of the and, and I think Inception was nominated, which was sort of how the the bigger nominee thing was supposed to work. Is that like this big commercial movie that mm-hmm. everyone loved got included in with the smaller Inception stuff. And Toy Story
0: 3. And Toy Story 3. That's
1: right. Accomplishment. Yeah. So also there was Black Swan, The Fighter, The Kids Are All Right. The Social Network, True Grit, and Winter's Bone. In 127 that, Hours. 127 Hours, excuse me, yes. And yeah,
0: I, Winter's Bone is a Best Picture nominee. Yeah, I
1: mean, it's a great little movie, but uh, I, yeah. I, I had forgotten entirely. Well, that but,
0: was kind of how it started off as being a list of 10, and then I think they got inspired to kind of close it a little bit, yeah. saying, like, we're getting these movies in here that, like, really no one ever thought would be yeah. a Best Picture nominee.
1: Well, I'm going to answer this, this little hypothetical in two different ways. One way is how I would have gone then, and now is how I, mm-hmm. I would go now. I would say then... I was so in the bag for Black Swan. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I love that. I mean, I think that movie is fantastic and, and a really weird little piece of art. But I would have definitely voted for it then. Now, I would say Social Network.
0: I think I'm the opposite. At the time, mm-hmm. I was so convinced that Social Network just had to do it because it was winning yeah. all these critics' prizes and it was the movie everybody was talking about. I think that movie really is amazing, Like especially when you yeah. set it next to Steve Jobs, which I know you like better than I do. But yeah. you know, the Social Network has so much going for it.
1: Yeah, it does. I mean, I I think that it. I, I think that there was something. You know, I don't necessarily think that Aaron Sorkin's characterization of Mark Zuckerberg. Like the more that I sort of see Aaron Sorkin grapple with the internet, whether it's on this, um, the the newsroom or or in Steve Jobs, like I, I don't think that he was as fair maybe to Zuckerberg as it seemed like he was mm-hmm. back then.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Zuckerberg's really he's done all right for himself. He's a yeah, dad now. Yeah. And he's uh donating money to charity, supporting parental leave. It's a uh, he's doing okay. He's grown right.
1: up. But I still think there was something prescient about that movie in that it took Facebook, which was, you know, five years old at the time, pretty seriously. Yeah. And that Facebook has not gone away, but in fact, just sort of metastasized into something that everyone in the online world, uh, you know, you and I included, have to be very well aware of. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I think at least it got that right. And that's a big at least. I mean, it's, you know, it that's a, a, a huge thing for a movie to sort of um, see coming. So that's why I would I would give it. That now. But I, you know, again, I haven't watched Black Swan in a while, so maybe I yeah. would. Yeah.
0: I kind of I would like for history to give The Social Network its its spot. Like I think it deserves better than being the also ran to The King's Speech, which is a perfectly fine movie. I don't want to you know yeah, The I, King's, I really speech King's Speech gets
1: unfairly maligned. I think yeah, um, but no I you know I I, mean, I even like Les Misérables, so I'm I, oh, yeah, I have been a Tom Hooper fan in the past. So.
0: Yeah, but I think I would give it a Black Swan just because I like it when something weird and specific and really passionate like that can can make its way to the top of something. Sure. I think The Hurt Locker is an interesting yeah. example of that, and Black Swan is so over the top and poetic. And I mean Darren Aronofsky went from that to making Noah, both of them were big financial successes. So he's got this interesting track record of getting people to buy into his very strange movies. Yeah,
1: the financial success of Black Swan in particular was kind of stunning to watch. Yeah. Happen. I mean, that movie made a ton of money. Well, this
0: it's whole fun. year, I mean, this lineup, you got, like, The Fighter made a ton of money, Black Swan, 127 Hours, The Social Network did, True Grit is the biggest hit the Coen brothers have ever had. Yeah, that was
1: huge, that movie. Yeah,
0: I mean, yeah. and, the, you know, The Kids Are All Right, and Winter's Bone are these very small indies that did just fine for themselves. Yeah. You know, they mm-hmm. weren't $100 million grocers. But yeah, this is an interesting kind of more mainstream lineup of best picture films and not
1: for nothing black swan kids are all right and winter's bone that's three best picture nominees with women leads mm-hmm. which is which is very rare
0: yeah um, uh, so, true grit too honestly yeah,
1: though, oh, yeah of course yeah of course Haley steinfeld um so this was a good year man yeah this was I, I think i would i would have been happy with any of these winning honestly maybe maybe not 127 hours
0: yeah but, i liked it at the time but i don't really yeah. uh I, I can let that one go that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, uh, if you can review us and rate us on iTunes, we really appreciate it. It helps us find new listeners. Uh, you can find us all writing about award season and can and Tribeca and all kinds of other things at VanityFair.com. And you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And Mike, even though he's not with us this week, is still at Mike underscore Hogan. How about you, Richard?
1: Uh, I'm at Ryla's, R-I-L-A-W-S.
0: This episode was produced by Sam Dingman and edited by Tim Einenkel. And thanks, as always, to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for best post-farmers market lament goes to our guest, Franklin Leonard.
2: It's definitely frustrating, especially when you find something that you love and then you have trouble getting it made.